0: Thank you very much for letting me be your guest today. Uh, when you have a... Uh... No, no, I just need a place to put my clock so I don't go over time. Well, that's good enough then. <laughs> he made it, so he knows how it works. That's a good deal. Well, thank you. Uh, I know when a congregation has a, a special event or a special day, and then you ask somebody outside your congregation to come in and, and either share that or speak to you, that's a high compliment and I'm honored and humbled by that. Thank you very much for that invitation. Um, I came in early yesterday and hung out with my niece and nephew, Braxton and Jewel, and my brother, Gerald, and his wife, Missy. And uh, it's just been a good visit, and look forward to getting able to visit a little bit this afternoon when our services are over. When we talk about the dynamic of trust, if I outline kind of a hierarchy of what a relationship is built on, the, the very pinnacle of a relationship is going to be love. And I'm talking in the biblical sense where love is an attitude, not an emotion. The idea of having the attitude of love is where I put your needs above my rights. It's the idea that I choose to love you even when you're unlovable. It's the idea that my love for you is not based on circumstances or your behavior. It's based on a commitment that I've made. That kind of love only comes from a sense of intimacy. When people can uh, interact with one another on a, on a very connected basis. But if you go love and then intimacy, what is intimacy really built on? Intimacy is really built on trust. How do you define trust? And that's a very interesting concept to me because in in my practice, over the last few years, we've run into people whose husbands get caught doing things with the internet they shouldn't do or wives get caught in relationships either on social media or in person and and trust has been breached. And the couple comes in the office and you talk to to them and they say, well, I just can't trust this person anymore. And so in, in an attempt to try to learn how to rebuild trust, I realize that we don't really define trust very well. And we know what it means. We know how to use it in a sentence. We know how to define it. But how do you measure it? If I were going to say, can I talk to somebody for just a few minutes and make a determination whether or not I can trust you or not? How does a person make a determination like that? How do you learn who you can trust? And probably more importantly, rather than who you can trust is figuring out whether or not I'm a trustworthy person. Uh, I do some adventure-based therapy. Uh, if you're familiar with ropes courses or challenge programs or something like Project Adventure, I uh, started out doing some, some rock climbing and rappelling exercises with kids, and that kind of blew up into us building some ropes courses and some, some actual structures and things. I got invited to go over to North Georgia several years ago and work with a, a group called Camp Coca-Cola. Camp Coca-Cola was Kent Coke's idea to do a signature program like the Ronald McDonald houses and so they took this Girl Scout camp and they invested a lot of money into it they wired it for Wi-Fi they invested in renovating the cabins and then they wanted a a high and a low ropes course and I was fortunate enough to be able to inaugurate that program and work with coke uh, in, in working with these students so I'm spending a couple of days that summer a week going over and working with these kids And mostly 7th graders, they brought 72 kids from inner-city Atlanta. You had to have a letter from a teacher, a minister, and somebody else, and you had to go through this application process. They're going to do Camp Coca-Cola for like eight weeks that summer. And then the next summer, they split that group of kids in half. And the old campers would have new campers that they would mentor, and they would do two versions of Camp Coca-Cola. So I'm in on the ground floor of this thing working with these kids, and we're doing a trust fall with a bunch of 7th graders. A trust fall is the thing you put a kid up on a platform and he wraps his hands up like he's singing, wrapped up, tied up, tangled up in Jesus, and he falls backwards and his buddies catch him. Now, don't just do that at a youth event. Uh, Don't just get a table in the fellowship. There's some things you've got to know when when you do that. But we're doing this trust fall with these kids. I've been working with them for several weeks. It's not the first thing I do out of the box for sure. So I've got these little guys ready to do their thing, and some executives from Coca-Cola are on campus. So I'm out here in my, you know, my fatigues and my hiking boots and a, a T-shirt, and these suits are walking around camp. Well, they start making this, this kind of this orbit around my station because they want to see what we're doing with these kids dropping them out of the air. We're there, and the little guys have got their stuff ready, and the little kid is in his little position, and he goes, Spotter's ready. We're ready. I'm falling on three. Fall on three. And as he falls backwards, he panics because when you fall off of a truss fall, there's a place right about here that you realize, you know what, I can't stop this ride. It's going to happen. And when he goes back, he opens up his hands, and he smacks this other little guy in the nose with his elbow. Knocked his glasses sideways. His little nose is bleeding. He's probably got a broken nose. And so now the suits are right there in my back pocket. You know, i got all these executives from Atlanta there. This little guy's standing here on my course bleeding. And I just asked this little guy, I said, okay, when he flung his arms out, why didn't you just move? And he said, because I made a promise to stand here regardless of what he did. And when I debrief a trust fall, I used to process that exercise about whether or not you surround yourself by people you trust. I don't do that anymore. I talk about whether or not you're someone who can be trusted. And so we talk about the dynamic of trust. This is not about do you need to trust your spouse This is the idea of whether or not I can trust, if I can be a person that is trusted. How do you measure trust? A researcher and a therapist named John Gottman, lives out on the the West Coast, works very closely with the University of Washington, did a measurement of trust. He got with the mathematics department, the research department, University of Washington, and, and they wanted to build what they call a trust metric. Now, the minute I start talking about metrics... And things like that, I'm getting out of my realm of expertise because mathematics is not my strong thing. I called my high school algebra teacher when I graduated with my master's from Alabama A&M and uh, told her that I I was going to brag to her that I had passed statistics. And I said, may I speak to Dr. Long? She said, this is Dr. Long. I said, this is Lonnie Jones. Now, this was my high school algebra teacher. She said, the Lonnie Jones... I said, yes, ma'am. She says, in what correctional institution are we dialing from? Okay, so I wasn't a good math student. You know, there are three kinds of people in the world, those who are good with numbers and those who aren't. And you know which one I am. But in this trust metric, they do this research and they do this idea. And when they boil down to, to trust, trust becomes a, a function of selfishness or selflessness. Period. In fact, when, when they explain their definition for the trust metric, it's almost a direct quote from Philippians chapter two, verse four. And if you have your New Testament, l- let's look at that. And we'll spend most of our time in Philippians two this morning. Philippians two four, let each of you look not out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. What's fascinating about this is Dr. John Gottman, every time I've seen him on a film or heard him lecture, uh, wears a yarmulke. Uh, He's he's a practicing Jew. And the chances that he's read the New Testament might be pretty small. But when they do this research, they come out with almost a verbatim quote of, of trust as a function of whether or not a person is selfish or not. So we begin to talk about the dynamic of trust. And whether or not you can be trusted in your relationship, either as a student with your parents or either as a husband with your wife or either as an elder with a congregation or an employee in a business or in any dynamic that you have, the real measure of whether or not you and I are people of trust is really going to boil down to how well we get a handle on selfishness and whether or not we are people who are selfish or whether or not we are people who are selfless. So Paul in this section as he talks to the church at Philippi is going to give some prescriptions and some proscriptions. He's going to tell them some things to do. He's going to tell them some things not to do. And then he's going to illustrate his point uh, like all good uh, brethren do. We, we give our two points and an illustration. And so Paul's going to give his, his illustration. If you want to look at this instead of prescriptions and proscriptions, he's going to tell us to change the way we see ourselves. He's going to tell us to change the way we see others. And then he's going to give us an illustration. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I'm in the New King James Version. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That's our text. Paul says, when you make a decision about what you're going to do, how you're going to behave, how you're going to react or interact, when you make that decision, you can't do anything out of selfish ambition. Selfishness. If I could get a handle on selfishness, I could correct every problem in my life. If I could educate the world on selfishness, I could eliminate divorce could eliminate bad behavior in kids, and could probably have world peace. Selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin. I had a young man ask me one time in a Bible class, he said, Lonzo, he said, intellectually I understand that God sees all sin as the same. He said, you know, we're taught that, we hear that, we read that, we study that. He said, but even though I get it intellectually, I really don't understand it. How can a guy who, who, who steals a candy bar from Walmart... Be in the same category as a guy who's out here axe murdering children. How can those two sins be the same? Well, those two sins are the same because they're based in selfishness. James chapter 3, verse 16, contrasted with John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, that's an ultimate selfless verse. James 3.16 says, For you have selfish ambition, every evil thing exists. You want to open the door for any sin, any perversion, any false doctrine, any corruption? All you have to do is add a little tablespoon of selfishness and you can get it. Selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin in the fact that we sin because of what we want. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, When you are tempted, no one should say, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, nor does He tempt anyone with evil, but each of us is drawn away by our own, Old King James Version said, lust, other versions say evil desires and enticed. Two interesting Greek words. drawn away is the exact same Greek word for to put a bait in a trap. And enticed is the same Greek word for putting a piece of a of, of bait or lure on the end of a fishing line. He says you are tempted and I'm tempted by the things that we want. And sometimes those wants don't necessarily have to be anything evil. It's just you can take a want and corrupt it into a lust and get in trouble. You know, I want my children to have a better financial situation than I had growing up. Nothing wrong with that. But if it leads me into covetousness, it leads me into getting my life out of balance, then that's a a want that got corrupted. So selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin. Your sin is, is irrelevant. My sin is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Your sin is the personal manifestation of selfishness in your life. My sin is the personal manifestation of selfishness in my life. If you analyze flying accidents, pilots who, who get killed flying, they look at two factors, internal hazards and external hazards. And when an internal hazard, what's going on with the pilot, has an intersection with an external hazard, something going on with the plane or the atmosphere or the weather, you get a, a crash and you get a death. When you're tempted, no one can say, I'm tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anybody, nor is He tempted by evil. But each of us is drawn away by our own desires. When desire has brought forth, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. James 1.13 says that internal hazards and external hazards lead us to spiritual death, just like when pilots get killed. So selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin. Number two, selfishness is the opposite of love. Now, wait a minute, Brother Lonnie. The the antonym for love is hate, yeah? The antithesis for love is selfishness. Because when I'm only pursuing myself, I'm not thinking about you. So it's the common denominator behind all sin. It's the opposite of love. In fact, it's the opposite of Christianity. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. You can't be a follower of Jesus and be selfish. You can't be a follower of Jesus and, and, and pick up a cross. You can't be a follower of Jesus and have yourself in the, in the wrong place. In fact, if you look at selfishness as it's described in the New Testament, the, the way we handle the self is a measure of Christian maturity. You read in Galatians chapter 5, you talk about the the fruit of the Spirit. And we're not an agricultural society as much as we used to be. So when we use the term fruit of the Spirit, sometimes that doesn't connect with me. When you go down to Walmart and you go to that section where they sell the fruit and the vegetables, what's it called? That's the produce department. They sell what those plants produce. What does the Spirit produce? What are the products of the Spirit? If I'm a spiritual person, what will you see produced in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and control of the self. If I learn to manage me and have a proper balance, I know how to treat other people and I know how to respond to God. Paul says don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Because if we are motivated by selfishness, we're going to be always controlled by sin and temptation. We don't really know how to properly love and then we're not going to be very mature Christians because selfishness is the exact interference with being able to follow God. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that that salvation is a matter of this statement, not my will, but thy will be done. If we stand in the presence of God and we look to God and say, not my will, but your will, then we probably live the kind of lives that that get us redeemed. If God looks at us and says, not my will, but your will, then we live the kind of lives that are self-driven, that are have an agenda that says, I'm only going to do my thing. So number one, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Number two, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Some versions call that vain conceit. Some versions call that vain glory. Conceit is the idea where I give myself a price tag and I inflate that price tag. It's where I treat myself as a little more special than maybe I ought to be. It's it's the idea of of filling myself up with self-importance. It's the idea of being haughty. It's the idea of being arrogant. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, His his lead-off batter is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who are not spiritually arrogant. We can't do things from a standpoint that we view ourselves as much more important than we really are. I'm not sure that we deal with that many narcissists in the church, but we get close to it. Because sometimes we evaluate ourselves based on what we've accomplished or what our titles are or who we were or how many generations have been in the church. And and we make decisions about dealing with other people and we have nothing to to think about their worth. It's always about our worth. By the way, when you sin, you have to devalue other people. You look at the dynamic that takes place between David Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. The shepherd king of Israel has to make some decisions to treat these people as less than himself. Or he can't, create, he can't commit treason and murder and adultery in the same weekend. But he does. Why? Because he had this conceited idea that the thing that I want is more important. And my grandmother used to have a phrase, I'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. Okay, that's, that's the gap Paul is talking about. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition and don't do anything out of vain conceit. And sometimes we like to have this, this criterion of, of who we are and it makes us somehow special. There's a, a preacher's story I like to tell. I used to call it an old preacher's story. But I'm not really sure what that means. I don't know if it's a story that's old that all preachers tell or if it's a story that old preachers tell. So i just stay away from it now. It's a preacher story. And it's about this big celebration of doings, if you will, in Texas. And the guy's going through the line. There's, there's dinner on the grounds. And he's got his plate. And he stands in front of the line. And the lady puts three chicken fingers on his plate. And he says, Ma'am, I'd like more than three chicken fingers. And she said, Well, you get three chicken fingers. He said... But I need more than three chicken fingers. She says, well, you can only have three chicken fingers. He said, well, ma'am, you don't understand. I want more than three. She said, you don't understand. You only get three. And so he clears his throat and backs his shoulders up says, apparently, you don't know who I am. And she said, sir, I apologize, but I, I don't know who you are. He said, madam, I am the governor of the great state of Texas. She said, Governor, I apologize. I didn't recognize you without your suit. You look taller on TV. I, I just, she was just all over herself, backing up. Sir, I, 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 my sincerest apologies. I did not recognize you as the governor of Texas. She said, But you probably don't know who I am. He said, Ma'am, I have no idea who you are. She said, I am the lady. What hands out the chicken fingers? And your importance sometimes is not about your title or not about your pedigree. It may depend on what side of the table you're on. And if you're in charge of the chicken fingers, guess what? You're in charge of the chicken fingers. So don't do anything out of selfish ambition and don't do anything out of this inflated sense of who you're worth. Our teenagers have a difficulty. And it's the difficulty that comes out of First Kings chapter 6 when Adonijah said to himself, I will be king. And his father had never rebuked him, questioned him, interfered with him, saying, Why do you behave as you do? Our young people have to learn the world does not center around them. And that sense of inflated worth sometimes interferes with with our ability to discipline or train young people to walk worthy of the kingdom of God. So Paul says, first of all, change the way you see yourself. Don't do anything you do out of selfish ambition. Number two, don't do anything you do out of vain conceit. And then the contrast, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than yourself. This is, this is a cognitive shift. This is where I make a determination in my attitude that I'm going to treat you as if you're more important, if you're more special, as if you're more worth than I am. Changing, number one, the way I see myself. Changing, number two, the way I see others. And when I start thinking about your needs rather than my rights, that's a fundamental change in my way of operation and it eliminates a lot of conflict. It eliminates a lot of hassle. It eliminates a lot of drama because if we're competing and you say, I'm more important. No, no, I'm more important. No, no, I'm more important. No, I'm more important. That's always a conflict. But when I say, let me treat you as more important, you say, no, let me treat you as... Then we quit conflicting, we quit competing, and we actually start getting along with each other because instead of life being a series of victories and competitions, we understand that we can trust each other and that you're not making any decision that is going to harm me. Because see, that measure of trust, as you sit down with a young couple in your office and you ask her this question, when he makes decisions, does he make decisions based on him, on you, Or on y'all. And if she says when he makes decisions, he thinks about me or he thinks about us, the us and trust, she can trust him and she should trust him. But if her fundamental belief is that his decision-making process always goes with what do I want, what do I need, what do I deserve, what do I get, if she believes he makes his decisions based only on thinking about himself, number one, she does not trust him. She probably doesn't know she doesn't trust him, but she doesn't. And she shouldn't trust him. The guy that I rock climb with is single. He's 41 years old. He, he and I climb a lot together. We got the, the ability, the opportunity to go out to Yosemite and climb. Now, and we didn't do anything on El Cap. But we did some pretty significant rocks for two boys from Alabama. He stood in my living room. He looked at my wife and said, We will both come back or neither one of us will come back. Selfless. He said, when we get out there and we get in the high end of things and we get out there on the end of that vertical rope, I will not come back. I will die trying to save that man. And I told his mother the same thing. I said, we'll both come back or neither one of us will come back. Now, if you were to to go on a fishing trip or a hunting trip or get engaged or date somebody and you believe that was their mindset, you trust that person. But young ladies, if you date a guy and that's not his mindset, get rid of him. And young men, if you date a young lady and that's not her mindset, don't get in that relationship. And gentlemen, if that's not your mindset, you need to change the way you treat your spouse and change the way you treat your family. And ladies, the same thing. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Don't do anything out of vain conceit. But in lowliness of mind, I'm going to change the way I see myself. I'm going to change the way I see you. I'm going to esteem others as better than myself. Verse 4, and let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. There's some business I have to take care of with me. There's some things I have to do because it's my responsibility and my accountability. But for the most part, I, I handle my business and then I start putting you on a higher plane. Jesus, when, when asked what the greatest commandment is, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Inherent to the Christian ethic is having a balance of self. If, if I don't have a proper view of myself, I don't know how to treat you. If I don't have the proper view of myself, I don't know how to interact with you. If I have too high a view of myself, I'm a narcissist. If I have too low a view of myself, then, then I'm codependent or I have learned helplessness. But if I have that proper view, I look not only out for my interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, that's a pretty concise discussion of the dynamic of trust. And if we stop there, and if this were the worship hour rather than the Bible class hour, we could eat lunch early. But Paul doesn't stop there. He tells this example, change the way you see yourself, change the way you see others, and then he illustrates his point. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation... And taking on the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Paul's illustration. Well, my illustration is about a guy I climb with named Troy. My illustration is about Camp Coca Cola in North Georgia. Paul's sermon illustration is Jesus. Paul says, you want to understand how how to not be selfish, how not to be conceited, how to esteem others better, to have a shift in lowliness of mind. Let me illustrate my point. Let me tell you the story of Jesus. And when Paul tells the story of Jesus, he does not start in the manger. When Paul tells the story of Jesus, he starts in the throne room of heaven. Let this attitude, let this mindset, let this cognition, let this be in you. Was in Christ. Now, listen at the description of Christ, who being in the very form of God, He is God. And it was not robbery, it was not inappropriate, it was not a faux pas. To be seen as equal with God. Some of your translations will say did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's not something you wrestle over or struggle over or fight for. His equality with God was just there. It was. It wasn't inappropriate. So you walk into the throne room of heaven. And there's thrones on the dais. Which throne do you bow in front of? You bow before all of them or any of them because they're all God. Let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, even though he was in the very form of God, it was not robbery, it was not inappropriate, it was not bad form, it was not incorrect for him to be considered equal with God. He is God. And I'm not sure... That I can adequately explain that to you. I'm Oxford educated, but it's Oxford, Alabama. Okay, so I'm not sure where, where that where that what they taught us in Greek. Doctor McKinney over at Harding said that when you have the definite article in front of a noun, the definite article in front of the noun makes it a proper name. So in Alabama, we name our sons Buck, and we give it a capital letter, and his name Buck. If you don't give it a capital letter, then that's just a buck. It's just a deer. So in Greek, instead of a capital letter, you have the definite article. So if you see a noun, the word for God, and it's got the definite article, that's God's name. If you have the word God without the definite article, then it's just God or a God. So in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word God has the definite article, so it's God's name. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and then you have the Word God without the definite article. Maybe not even capitalized. What do you do with that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God? Ah, no, we don't like that. The Word was deity? That works, but that's not words we use on an operational basis. The word was God stuff. And again, I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to illustrate this, and, and this illustration is, is very, very far away from 100% accurate, but it helps me as close I've ever come to it. You put a glass of water up here on this podium. What's the chemical formula for water? H2O, right? You lower the temperature of that liquid to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, 0 degrees Celsius, and it becomes a hydroxide. It becomes a thing we call ice. What's the chemical formula for ice? H2O. Now, the two's on top of the line rather than below the line, but it's there. You take that glass of water and you raise the temperature, and it becomes a mist or a water vapor. What's the chemical formula for water vapor? H2O. 100% 100% water, 100% water, 100% water, three distinct manifestations. Scientists call it the three phases of water. A chemist over in Muscle Shoals told me there's a thing called the triple point. And at the triple point, you can have solid, liquid, and gas exist at the same place. And it's all water. 100% water, 100% water, 100% water, but a solid liquid and a gas. You've got God. 100% God. Father, Son, and Spirit. I can't explain how it happens, but that's how it happens. It's three distinct manifestations, but at the same time, it is all absolutely 100% authentic God. In John chapter 17, Jesus is in the garden. He's praying to the Father about the Spirit. Three distinct personalities, three distinct locations, and yet there's this, this idea that they're all one, but they're all very different. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ who was in the very form of God. And it was not inappropriate. It wasn't wrong. There wasn't anything wrong with this to consider Him as God. But He made Himself of no reputation. And taking on the form of a bondservant, He came as a man. Now why did Jesus come to the earth? He came to the earth to establish the kingdom. Now, if you come to to a place to establish a kingdom, in, in technical terms, what are you doing? Well, you're taking over. Let's suppose we decide to go take over someplace. Let's pick us a little island over in the Caribbean and let's go take over. How would we do that? Well, as Americans, we'd use three main strategies. Number one, we'd use popularity. We'd use propaganda. Since the advent of television, the most attractive candidate has been elected to the presidency of the United States. We're shallow people. So we'd go to some little third world place and we'd buy billboards and posters and make commercials and we'd create this thing where we were going to, to, to have people follow us because of our popularity. Do you think Jesus could have been popular? More popular than He was? I mean, let's suppose that Jesus had decided, I will perform miracles and I'll perform miracles in the Civic Center or the Colosseum or the football stadiums. Could Jesus have had rock star status? Could Jesus filled up every place, every seat, every venue, every night, every time he walked out on stage? This means yes in North Alabama. This means no. This means you're not voting. Could Jesus have had, had, had rock star status? Absolutely. But when Jesus came to the earth and performed these miracles, how many times do you read the New Testament where he says, don't tell anybody what I've done for you? How many times does he seek solitude? Jesus didn't come to be a rock star. Second thing we'd do if we were going to go take over a place, as Americans, we'd throw money at it. we put a lot of capital involved in it. We'd buy up stuff. We'd have power from... Do you think Jesus could have been an entrepreneur? Would you like to have been in the restaurant business with Jesus? <laughs> Bring a biscuit feed to everybody? <laughs> what a great name for a restaurant, you know? Excuse me, sir, what are you drinking? What do you have? What do you want? <laughs> if you've got an empty glass, we can fill it. I mean, wow. Wow. If you can turn stones into bread, you can run a restaurant. You can turn stones into gold. Capital is not an issue with Jesus. Yet Jesus will say, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay His head. He built everything and owned none of it. Jesus didn't come as an entrepreneur or a millionaire. Third thing we do as Americans, if we're going to take over a place, military might. Nuke them till they glow, shoot them in the dark. I mean, we'd, we'd aim everything we have and that would be our stuff. Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Don't you realize I could call on my Father and He will give me 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion had 6,000 men in it. 12 legions of angels is 72,000 angels. We sing the song he could have called 10,000 angels and we only miss it by about 62,000 angels. One angel in 2 Kings 19 kills 185,000 men with the sword. Actually, there's not a sword involved. It just says the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 men. If you assume the average batting average of an unarmed angel is 185,000 men, and you extrapolate that by 72,000 angels. Do you understand the destructive power that was at the fingertips of the Messiah? I made that statement offhand in, in Miami, Florida. A guy walks out of the building. I'm shaking the brethren out of the building. He walks out, pulls a visitor's card out of his pocket. Looks like something Wally e. Coyote has been working on. He said, I'm an engineer, and your comment about the angel and the kill ratio piqued my curiosity and he hands me this thing, and my head starts to spin. He said, based on a 10-hour day and a kill ratio of 185,000 per 72,000 angels, you can destroy the current world's population in 3.36 hours. That's power. That's might. Legion 1, take the Romans. Legion 2, take the Jews. Legion 3, take the guy with a hammer. You have nine legions left over and not enough dust to put in a spoon. And yet when Jesus came to the planet, He didn't come as a military leader. He didn't come as a rock star. He didn't come as an entrepreneur. Paul says He came as a bond servant. Greek word, doulos. Two Greek words in your New Testament for servant. One is diakonoi. When you say deacon, you're speaking Greek. It's transliterated and southernized. But when we talk about a deacon, that's a kind of Servant. The other kind of servant is this bond servant. A bond servant was the youngest, cheapest, least experienced, least educated servant you could buy on the slave market. And when you brought a doulos to your house, his job was to wash company's feet, and you could buy one for thirty pieces of silver. You want to be a person of trust. You want to change the dynamic in your home, your neighborhood, your congregation, your school, your team, your company? Then you imitate Jesus. And you step away from whatever is thrown that you think you occupy with your titles or your position or your wealth or your power. And it's not about how much money you have or how popular you are or how much might you have. And you step away from that and you do the same thing that Jesus did and you become a servant A servant who not only had the ability to destroy the world a thousand times over, but let the people of the world kill his body. That's when you can be trusted. Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, A servant who's perfectly trained will be like his master. If my master is a servant, the greatest thing I can ever hope to become is a servant. And when I learn to be a selfless servant in my home, in my church, in my school, on my team, in my neighborhood, in my business, in my community, then I become a person that people trust. And when I can be trusted, I can have intimacy. And when I can have trust and intimacy, I can have love. And if I don't have trust, I can't have intimacy and I can't have love. And this lesson is not about whether or not you trust the people you're involved with but whether or not the people who are involved with you can trust you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and taking on the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Christ, the Messiah, and His example of what it is to be selfless and thus to be a person that we can give ultimate trust and faith to. Father, help us just to shadow that example in some way with our wives and our kids and our churches and our homes and our communities. Father, thank you for the inspiration of the Apostle Paul and the instructions that he gives us on how to get along with each other. Father, bless our day today. Help us to fortify not just the family but the church family. Draw us close together as we draw close to you. Thank you again for the blessings of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.